With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We made this. everyone and welcome to The Time Is Now. Silent Green is people. My name is Kurt North and I am here with you yet again to talk about another episode. This time we are talking Season 3, Episode 3. And it's, uh, depending on how you want to look at it, it's either the end of the world as we know it or Teotihuawiki or whatever you want to do to pronounce that. Um, joining me today before we get into any further details is Adam Chamberlain returning again from the back end of season two, well, you were last on Adam in Amanesis. So we've had the time is now. We've had uh, we've had the end of the world, and surprisingly enough, the end of the world didn't happen. Uh, so, uh, so what? One, how are you doing? And just just your general thoughts on on the the season two finale. Quick overall thoughts and uh, your relationship with season three, and and how you how you've uh, you've come to. To either love, hate, have an ambivalent feeling on season three, <laughs> and just millennium as a whole. Great, sure. Yes, hello. And uh, yeah, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me back. So um, I was a big fan of season two and a big fan of that um, finale. But but in, in terms of my relationship with the with the series, um, I, I came at season three, I guess, quite late. So I'd watched uh, season one from the, uh, if I'd have bought the videos, which are on a shelf behind me. I, st- I, know, I still love them dearly. So they're on display on a shelf behind me. <laughs> um, I watched season two as it transmitted here in, in the UK, thanks to uh, a brother who had access to Sky at the time. But then I think because I'd moved away somewhere, I'm not sure where and when season three transmitted in the UK, if indeed it did, but I had no access to it at the time. So excruciatingly having uh having loved that finale as as much as i did um from season two um yeah i found myself unable to see season three and and just read articles reviews read the synopses on the official website on the millennial abyss and kind of resigned myself to the fact that i i would never see most of of season three um there was then the um so there was the x-files millennium episode and that, and that got released here in yeah. the uk um again as a as a video as a vhs release with oh yeah i have that somewhere yeah actually. I, I don't know that i still have it foolishly i i think i i got rid of that when i upgraded my uh x-files collection from video to dvd well, foolishly so i don't that's crazy yeah. that i no longer have it but uh, but it had the the final two-parter from season three so having not seen any of season three and just and just read snippets online i then watched that two-parter and and uh, and then the x-files millennium episode and it wasn't until the dvds came out several years later that that i finally got to see the season in its entirety so i and at that point i was 
it was it was like a, a bonus that I got to see it at all. So I I lapped up season three. It was almost a season I thought I would I would never get to see and and um and I and I do appreciate season three. Um I for those who say they wish the series had ended at the end of the season two, well it, it almost did to all intents and purposes for me and it and it kinda sucked. So um so I I had that sort of distance before I'd seen it. So I guess I know for some people the beginning of the season sort of jars. It didn't for me, partly because I knew what was coming. Um, but um, no, I've, I've just just appreciated that it exists at all, and, and, and that I got to see it and watch it over and over. So um, I'm, I, I am a fan of season three. It's that that sort of merging of 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 some of the approaches from season one and season two in, in a way that um, well, I think could have run beyond season three quite happily, but of course, sadly, didn't. Um, so um so no i'm very much here to celebrate season three <laughs> well that, that's good to hear <laughs> um yeah i mean i i've mentioned on the on the first couple of episodes that that i'm not as harsh on season three as a lot of people are i, I spoke briefly about the, the innocence and exegesis and how some of the sidestepping is interesting some of the themes are quite liked and and, and something that we'll touch upon in the, the end of the world as we know it um, when we get into the episode on how I find it's quite interesting how they re- they didn't push this as much as I thought they could have, but they kind of looked at the first two-parter as a two-parter on the theme of mother and daughter. And yet this one seems to be like father and son, but don't I don't think they push it that as much as they could have really. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, there's certainly, yeah, that whole thing around, around parenthood, um, yeah, I, I guess we'll get into it. But, but um, it, it, it there are some interesting instances of, of father and, and son, but then uh, that could that are contrasted with with Frank and um, and Jordan as well. Obviously, father and daughter in yeah. that instance that I, that I find interesting in here. But um, um, yes, that it comes up a lot, doesn't it? The whole parenthood and and uh, next generation in, in season three, and um, this is a good example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's going to be interesting. From from the last rewatch that I did, that obviously I wasn't looking at it in that aspect. I wasn't um, going to be doing this podcast at that point when I when I rewatched it originally. It was more a case of I've I've managed to transfer the the DVD onto something that I could watch whenever I wanted to watch it, and I kind of like sort of went right, okay, brilliant. I can now watch um, Millennium whenever I want to, kind of thing. And it just it kind of happened it was like oh right okay i've started with the pilot and then before long you know i'm into five two two six 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 and i'm going right i think i might be watching this <laughs> right <I'm> watching <laughs> the season again um so i and i remember getting to the time is now and i must admit that season three for me was a bit of a blur and still is i still can't re- quite remember when i watched it i'm pretty sure i watched it when it aired um but it's interesting you say about that that double parter and the millennium video because i'm not entirely sure that we had millennium at the time it's similar to what i had with the x-files around the anasazi trilogy when the vhs came out for that where it was the the unopened file where i didn't see most of season two until later on so i got to see the anasazi trilogy via that video and it was only when i went back and watched season two that actually got to the end but I've got a feeling that something with the VHS or the way that I watched Millennium Season 3 is that I might have seen the end two-parter on that video before seeing the entirety of Season 3 or at least towards the back end of Season 3. 
I think you're right. I think they were releasing those those special um, X Files video releases faster than than a lot of the other stuff was coming coming out or, or airing here. So yeah. yeah, I guess that's entirely possible. Yeah, yeah, and it's a bit of a blur to me, especially with Millennium. I don't know yet, but it is a blur. It is a blur. Um, and the, the, and as I say, when I watched season three, I I remember tweeting about this when I when I was rewatching it that. I struggled. I, struggled, I did struggle through it, as a lot of people have mentioned about the beginning, the first few parts of it. But I'm happy to report that so far, these three episodes, so far, I haven't. So it's not, It's. I think it's maybe slightly later and maybe in a couple of episodes time that I might struggle on one particular episode. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to wait until we get the delight of that one later. So it's a teaser. It is absolutely a teaser to uh, to my thoughts on a on a, an episode which involves uh, a rock band and various yes. other things. I, I mean, I think that my my overarching comment for season three would be just to uh, if if folks engage with it on its own terms. So if anyone's watching for the first time or they're rewatching, um, engage with it on its own terms in terms of what what the uh, uh, the creatives are trying to do with, with with the season. And I think you'll find there's much to enjoy. The end of the world as we know it, which is a bit easier than actually trying to say Tiot Wawiki, which which is an interesting term on its own. It's actually interesting when they use it within the episode as well. It aired on the 16th of October in 1998, and that's a particular date that we need to refer back to. Just off air, for those people listening, we just had to check on something, and we'll talk about that later on. Um, it was written by Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz. So uh, interesting in that Chris Carter is splitting his time at this point between LA and Vancouver. And this is his first um, written um, story for, for a while. And the fact that Frank Spotnitz is on board as well and is directed by Thomas J. Wright. Uh, IMDb is interesting for season three as a whole, actually, because it hovers around this mark and it's 7.3 out of 10. But the mm, numbers okay. have dropped down significantly in voting. So it was 189 people voted and this sees a shooting in a in a college so yeah so let, let's let's talk about just the the general aspects of, of this episode then because it, it it focuses in on um school shootings some something that's that's still prevalent today and issues that we've, we've had with gun control and all kinds of things now bearing in mind we're both british so you know we don't have the same kind of culture as uh, as america for any americans listening so you know, we're coming at this from a different different culture base, really. But um, it has that. It has the Y2K bug as a kind of, uh, as you kind of mysterious building up to the millennium end of the world aspect, which, you know, millennium does so well. And it has, as I say, this theme of the, of the parents kind of thing within it, while also kind of reset the way millennium is told. And this, to me, and I'll get into this in a bit more detail later in a particular scene, does feel closer to an X-File than I felt for some time. So what, what do you make to um, this episode as a whole then? What would you rate out of 10? And, you know, what's your general thoughts on it before we get into any any further deepness on it? Yeah, so I, I do like this episode quite a lot. And, and I think it is notable that it's um, that it's a script from Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz. And as you say, it's the first um, script from Chris Carter for some time. Um, so I think it's significant in terms of, you know, his his take on Millennium at this at this point in its run. Um, I would give it a healthy eight out of 10, I think. Um, 
yeah, I think there's some, there's some very, there were some interesting themes in here. I think the, uh, some of the characterization and some of the interplay between some of the key characters, I think is, um, uh, is, is spot on and really, really quite noteworthy. And there's some, just some very interesting, um, and salient, um, um, themes, um, and, and topics touched upon in this that, that make it, I think, a, a good, solid installment. Well, that's good to hear because I, I was a bit, um, concerned that, you know, it would get into the first two or three episodes and people were going, oh, um, but I, 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 I would, I would give it maybe seven and a half. I've watched this twice in the last two days. I watched it just before coming on air now for this recording. And I watched it over the weekend. And um, the one thing that stood out to me is that X-Files element that it, there was quite a few um, trademark bits on it. Now, that's not, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing, because I actually think the story itself is actually quite strong in some ways. And uh, and I do like um, some of the stuff that's, that's portrayed in it. And it's an interesting take. And as I say, it's interesting where it, where it lands in, in, the, in the show's run as well. So... I don't think that's a, that's necessarily a bad thing. I did think, as apart from remembering that Robert Wiseden is in it and uh, the Y2K and there's a shooting, that's pretty much all I remembered from before I did the rewatch. So in my head, it was a little bit forgettable, but I'm I would base it more on the fact that it's more X Files than anything else. But um, but as I say, that's not a, that's not a criticism in 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 any major sense, really. Um, so. What do you think, think to the themes then? There's the stuff with the, uh, you know, the shootings and stuff like that. I mean, did did you think that culminating the, the reason for the shooting behind it being that this Y2K bug was going to uh, was going to cause all the problems and some of the commercial aspects with the Americans, um, you know, basically hiding this from the general public and, you know, it would have commercial issues and commercial gain issues and stuff like that. Do you think that that was deep enough for you? Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, sort of superficially, you could say that perhaps the concept hasn't aged particularly well, and we always sort of laugh at the idea of the, the Y2K bug now. Although, uh, so Frank Spotnitz was was interviewed some some years afterwards and, and said that you know actually in 1998 it was still quite a, I think called it an exotic concept, um, and um, and the challenge for them was how to take this um, this sort of an abstract fear and turn it into something scary and, and dramatic for the, for the investigation. I I see that aspect of it as, I guess, if you read it as sort of emblematic for the sort of fears of the oncoming uh, millennium and this sort of prepper mindset, then I, f- I find that more more interesting. You have to sort of overlook that these IT professionals would be so convinced that um, uh, Y2K bug was going to uh, bring down society in, in, in quite such a way as this. But I think on a... Um, yeah, as a, as an allegory or as a, as an emblem of of uh, the oncoming millennium, I think it's that's that's the most interesting way to think about it. Yeah, so so the, the fact that the Y two K book didn't actually do much doesn't hate it. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, but no, I mean I, to be honest, I mean even even like watching it, I recall I recall it being much more of a a bigger thing in the episode, and it's not really. And I, and I think that looking back on it now, I actually think it plays out. It doesn't play out that bad. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a it was an existential fear, but I like the way that it's it's the i the people with the IT kind of aspect to them that they're the ones that are, you know, they're the ones that are hunkering down. They're the ones that are, you know, getting these guns and and buying the fencing and and, and preparing to do themselves. Very similar to what would happen in Force Majeure, thinking about it actually, 
you know, it's, it's very kind of that, you know, that aspect of like, they're worried that, you know, that this, this thing is going to happen and they're trying to keep it secret. And that's something I wanted to touch upon actually is the, the almost like the power. It's almost like, again, it's kind of as a relation to the X-Files in some ways and, and a bit of an abstract one is that there was a powerful group of people who knew that there's potential for this to happen, that they wanted to protect themselves and didn't want to tell other people because, you know, they're the ones that were going to survive it. And I thought that was really a, quite an abstract way of actually link, um, looking at the two. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's an interesting link link to make, and yeah, yeah, I can see that absolutely. Mm. Um, so uh, the cold open, so because we'll get we'll get into uh, get into the actual episode itself. So the cold open is obviously 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 this. Um, uh, I think Russ has mentioned this in in the mailbag, and it's quite a long mailbag that he's uh, he's written. So I don't know if we'll cool. get through it all. It's about, <laughs> it's probably about four pages long, Russ. Please uh, please refrain <laughs> from writing too much. Um, but it, but it is interesting in, in what he writes. But it starts off with the the cheerleading of the warriors and and the the obviously um, the actual uh, gunshots being heard through the through the actual crowd and and the like and the use of these uh, slow motion things that they've, they've picked up. So it happens twice within the the, the opening scene where you've got um, one of the characters um, Skylark, as we come to know him as. Um, you know, he see he looks at the, one of the cheerleaders and sees the feels like the world is slowing down and then when the gunshots go off and that world seems to slow down at that point as well and then you, you kind of come to this silence with the the girl screaming which i think was quite effective the girl screaming but what did it make to the the, the other elements of, of that um, opening credit scene yes so it's interesting what you, you said about what you remember from this episode it's it's this teaser that that I remember above all else, because to me, it's one of the, I don't know, it's one of the most shocking teasers of Millennium, I think. And, and it's in particular that sound design that you, you just mentioned that, that stands out to me. You get that, mm. that sort of plaintive, um, horrific cry from the, from the cheerleader right at the end of the teaser that, that, that haunts me. And, um, um, uh, yeah, that, that's, that stood with me as much as anything else from this episode, I think, and, and, and that whole teaser. So it's, um, yeah, it's. I think we're shocking then, and it's and it's shocking, just as shocking now, from the yeah. fact that, um, as you say, we still we still sadly have these instances of, of school shootings um, uh, and so on. So, it, for me, it's quite a standout teaser and and effective and horrendous. Yeah, and, and you, we were saying off air as well that you've got a some interviews from the Vancouver Sun, was it, uh, where mm. they talk about the Columbine shootings, but this that they those shootings, I say we had to check this, but. Um, those shootings were after the after the fact, but it's interesting how they actually um, spoke to some of the cast about it. And do you want to give us some information on that with, while we're while we're talking about the shootings themselves? Yeah, sure. So the um, it was the Vancouver Sun, um, and they spoke to them in in late April, I think, as they were wrapping up on on filming the the series. It was on one of the last days of of uh, filming, and and um, as they were doing perhaps a broader interview, they said that the 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 killings were very much in the minds of the cast and and crew, and um, what? So Lance Henriksen had, had spoken quite extensively in this, and and was talking about you know the the reality of of violence and the way that violence is depicted on television. And he says, uh, so he says, hey, um, yeah, you realise television doesn't even begin to show what violence really is. Think of the grief of the parents and of the victims. Think of the way those kids who live through that experience will have to deal with that for the rest of their lives. Television sanitises reality, and that's really dangerous. And then he talks about. Um, 
having been uh, three years on the series and how he fought to keep the show honest. Um, he says people say Millennium is so dark that it scares them. Well, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, and he says uh, in, in a lot of TV, um, death is sterilized, made antiseptic, it's trivialized. And let me tell you something, there's nothing trivial or sterile about death. So again, it's just saying that he thinks they've actually been quite responsible in terms of the way that they've, they've shown this stuff and shown that the real sort of horror of, of, um, of, of violent death on, on millennium. Um, and, um, um, Thomas J. Wright as well talks about how they've, um, they've been very selective about what they show on Millennium and what they don't show. And that he always maintains that Millennium's about stopping violence and not glorifying it. So, so there's an element of sort of defending the way that they've, they've, um, they've shown, um, yeah. um, content like the content we see in, in this episode. And, and I think they're absolutely right that through, through not with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Anatizing and through, uh, yes, being selective what they show, but actually showing something that, that does portray something of the horror of these um, situations that it's it's uh, that much more meaningful. Yeah, I mean, Spotnet has gone on to say, you know, some of the, I mean, Millennium is a slightly different take on it, but I know he's talked about the X-Files where, you know, you take something fantastical like, you know, alien colonization of the planet in 2012, mm. and you, you put that into the mundane. And I think I mentioned this on The Innocence and uh, the, the Exegesis last episode, actually. Uh, it was just fresh in the mind, but the um, Spotnet has always said that you li- live in putting something on screen or or making something like scary and and you know terrifying is by putting it into the mundane so like sub 731 yes. you know with the the groups of women who had cancer who would abductees but it, it it led it to like a self-help group more than that and how much fear there was there because it's in the, the mundanity of of everyday life and you know basing it into a school and yes, especially with some of the shootings that, that that have taken place, and that it it does it does give you that kind of oh, you know, it's 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 a real and it's a real possibility, and that's what that's what's really scary about it. Absolutely, and then and then sort of meaningfully dealing with the aftermath. Um, so if I can find this, so Claire Scott had said in here that. Um Yes, what I, what I feel about Millennium is that it deals with what happens after a violent act, uh, which is what I think makes it timely and important. Uh, I don't believe that examining the cause and effect of violence is is trivialising it. So, I mean, I mean, you're right; it's it's a shocking environment to see something like this, and and um, um, but actually examining the aftermath of it is um, um, again helps to sort of examine the cause and effect, and it, I think is what's uh, part of what makes this episode quite powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, Barry Baldwin comes in. Now, 
I would like to get your opinion on on Mr. Baldwin, <laughs> just in just in general, because uh, the, the first episode he, we we talked, I talked about this last week and uh, the week before about about his character and that you know he comes across Chris Knowles is very kind of uh, complimentary towards him, saying you know it's it's a very rounded character and uh, you know he, he portrays what you would expect for a, for a go getter that he's he's just like wanting to get up the ladder as quick and as efficiently as possible. But at the same time, something that I feel is that the way that he's drawn is that you've got like sh- different shades. So you've got like Emma, for example, when she comes out of the um, the car, she takes her time to come out of the car. She feels like she's the one that's the empathetic, empathetic one. Yes. And she seems to be taking everything in and like dealing with it from that point of view. But he's like going in there and being demanding. Um, so, what do, what do you think to uh, to to Baldwin as as a character as we as we head into this this third season? Yeah, he's he uh, he doesn't have a great start in episodes like this. He um, that's kind of interesting. His his interactions both with Frank and with uh, with with Giebelhouse that um, yeah, he, there's a certain sort of arrogance and presumptuous to him that uh, presumptuousness to him that becomes uh, is undoing. But but he becomes. He becomes more interesting, and he has something of an arc, and quite an interesting arc as the season wears on. So I, th- mm. I think ultimately he is a rounded character. But when you first meet him here, you kind of think, oh, okay, yeah, it's yeah. a bit of a jerk, bit of a know-it-all. Um, doesn't doesn't appreciate the uh, the experience that some that someone like Frank Brank uh, brings, and um, and of course, uh, yeah, Frank talks about that as well, right? Uh, uh, to uh, to McLaren quite early in the episode too. But um, um, yeah, so he's um, yeah, I, th- I think. Over the course of the whole season, yeah, he's he's quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting character, and he does go on something of a journey. Yeah, he, he does. But again, I mean, because obviously Emma Hollis is is uh, you know has a different role to play in in this, and obviously she's a right front and center of of the show uh, yeah. with Frank and in this in this third season iteration. But what I find quite interesting is um, is the the way it, and I don't know if this is pointed at anything in particular so please ignore my ignorance if if, if i'm uh, if i'm reaching here but the way the baldwin goes in it's it's true to the character that we've seen already he's kind of incandescently raging and ranting at people saying you know why are people taking it out and giebelhouse gets a great line you know great stuff <laughs> for giebelhouse to be back and uh you know basically saying i didn't want more black tape and stuff which which i thought was nice mm, it's humanistic it's a great line, a great line. Uh, yeah. so i thought it was brilliant but um it's what I picked up on the second viewing was it seems that, you know, they seem to be pointing directly at what people miss because Baldwin talks about the fact that, you know, we haven't surveyed the crime scene. And yet later on, Frank talks directly to Baldwin about the, you know, did you confirm, you know, it, it, I'm not saying you're wrong, but, you know, mm. it, have you got the, the, the fingerprints from the trigger, trigger bits and, you know, could it be the, the parent? Did you do the testing on the parents kind of thing? It seems like it's very pointed towards like sort of police evidence and and uh, kind of proceeds of crime kind of thing. Yeah, I th- and I think there are th- so there are a few instances in this episode where you you contrast um, characters who are disciplined and those who are undisciplined in different ways. And I think that's that the contrast there is between the discipline that you have with with Frank and also with with Emma Hollis. So, so as you say, when she turns up to the crime scene, she's being very observant. She's she's sort of quietly watching and, and noticing things and uh, uh, identifying clues at the scene as well. Um, whereas Baldwin, who's who's quite 
undisciplined, has his own sort of assumptions that he's made, has uh, somewhat arrogant, um, thinks he knows better than, than even someone like uh, someone as seasoned as Giebelhaus. I mean, that, that conversation was only going to end one way, right? When it starts, <laughs> yeah. it starts, so it's having a go at Giebelhaus. That's uh, it's a great scene. It, it is, yeah. I, I, as I say, it just seems that, you know, Baldwin is the one at the at the moment, the point of view that we're seeing him is very much going like, you know, at Gablehaus. It's quite interesting that they do that in, in the sense of, like, we know Gablehaus, so we know him as a character. So the fact that, you know, we're, we are being led down a path of not wanting to like Baldwin. And it's interesting how Chris Carter does these type of characters in, in some ways. I know potentially that he has had a bit of conversation with Chip Johansson and, and Michael Duggan and whatever, but the fact that, you know, You've got like Scully's brother, for example, and you've got someone like Former in in later seasons of the X Files, where you get these type of characters that that do pop up, and and it's like love to hate them kind of roles, yes. you know. So, yes. <laughs> so it's but yes, it seems like very pointed that you know Baldwin's the one that having a go at Gable House because everyone who knows Gable House is going to defend Gable House. Yes, which is, which is uh, just seems like it's a it's a deliberate act there. But then the fact that he's been so. I think I think the the point I'm getting at is that he's being so like you know we might have missed something and yet for, and he believes that he's so right in that and yet even later on where he's talking to Emma that um and this reflects back on I don't know if you watched the Innocence and Exegesis recently but yes I'd have yeah. yeah yeah so when Emma's talking about the the potential red flag it's almost like a mirror of that as well because. Uh, and Emma's yes. talking about, you know, the fact it's only a hunch, which is something that Frank had said to her in the last couple of episodes. But mm. yet he's ready to go, right, we've got ourselves, our our, our kind of, um, you know, fight, suspects really. And, and he goes all out for leather for it. So I quite like that aspect as well. I like the way that they've, it seems to be quite clever writing. Whether or not it was meant, but it, it seems to have that shade to me that there seems yes. like an interconnection between the two, three episodes. The scene that we move on to is um, uh, the. This is where I think it, fe- it feels most X Files, or the or the thing that for me, and I, it might be me putting my own like tinted glasses on this, but um, with the IT team around that table, it felt very Dehander Villette's style. It almost felt like you know, I know, it's, I know, it's a Morgan and one thing to do, but it felt like you had this secret cabal of people withholding this information that had this information to them. Um, you know, I know they're just testing stuff out, but it felt like this, these group of people that are working against, you know, the the general public as a whole, um, and that to me felt like the the teachers in 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 that episode of Dehan uh, de Valette. But again, I'm putting that on on myself. But there's the there's this um, corporate America thing though as well. The fact that you know it seems like none of us want to explain to our stockholders is what one of them says. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like sort of yeah. Where did, where's the line drawn? You know, there's this real threat that, that at the time we're talking about a real threat. As you say, that Spotnet has said that, you know, it's not, um, it wasn't really out there as a potential bug at that moment, but it would soon yeah. come into the uh, public consciousness about a year later. Hmm. Um, but it's kind of like, it's at that cusp of like, no one really knows, but we know, and we want to keep that between us. And that felt like it was uh, just a really interesting take on the fact that, and and another thing as well with it is later on when McLaren starts talking to Frank, it's like why are you holding out in this case? You know, yes. it's, it's, there's that 
de- development as well. Yeah, he's afraid of big business and and standing up to them, which whilst of course Frank is is more than happy to. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. There was a quote from um, from Chris Card from around the time this episode aired, and and he wasn't necessarily talking about this episode specifically, but I'm sure the reference is there where he said, um, "Yeah, people aren't really aren't afraid of the millennium. Uh, that was never the idea of the show, uh, but people are uncomfortable with the idea that we're heading into some unknowable kind of future and we're moving too fast technologically." And and I wonder right. if that was was there. Into it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. These are some of the, the sort of considerations, but but and, and therefore that these, um, these big tech companies, yeah, know something that we don't and they have too much power and control. I wonder whether that's uh, sort of features in that as well. Yeah, that's Which, a good point. Again, yeah. still very relevant today. <laughs> well, yeah, um, probably even more so in the fact that, you know, um, being us British at the moment and probably around the world, that we're having this d- d- delicate balance of, um, you know, being still recording in a pandemic. You know, we talked about this at the end of season two. Uh, yeah. We're still recording in, in the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, we're opening up the society at the moment as we record this. The scientists have basically said we've reached the limit and we might have to start doing trade-offs and stuff. But the, the actual thing now of like it's swung in the economy's favor for a few weeks and now it's going back to the science and it's the that economy, culture kind of protection, health and safety balance that seems to be going around in the world today. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We're uh, very protective of our sort of economic growth. Well, I mean, obviously, the economy falls apart and, and there's a, the health impact from that too. But, yeah. but there is that uh, notion of governments and those in power protecting, um, yeah, protecting the, the interests of those who, uh, who have wealth and influence. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and again, like sort of the second time I'm watching this episode, I feel like that. The more I think about it, the more that's laid in within this episode. And I think that, um, you know, whether or not it's directly or indirectly pointed or, or some of the stuff that it's done is maybe done a bit on the nose, it depends on how how you view it. But, I mean, I personally, as I say, think this episode is actually quite good and a, and a good one, a good third episode, to be honest. Um, but we get to the scene, and, and this, again, is a bit of a mirror here. And I don't know if this is a, a direct, like, I'm going to say this. I don't know if it's a direct shot at uh, at gun gun crime, <laughs> gun laws right. and stuff. Um, but we've got Frank, and and it it's a testament to what Frank is. There's a number of things happening in this this scene. So Frank is using he's at the gun range. He's obviously you know trying to get get re re um, certified for for bit holding a gun. And later in the episode, we've got the very end where. 
we've got the Hollis asks about what you're putting down for the um for the report and he says, Well, I didn't take a gun with me and you know, and that is very season one, Frank. Uh, mm-hmm. which which I like and, and season two as well I mean he got a gun because he was in season two purely because he was that it, it was that it was that dangerous so it's fair enough yes um, yeah. but it's interesting that you know Frank is firing his guns he's certified he's, and McLaren calls him out on how good a shot he is mm. and then later on we find the IT experts all shooting at the range and they're, they're not, I wouldn't say they were bad shots but they are not as refined and they're the ones holding the guns and wanting to use them. And I thought that was yes. really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I noticed exactly the same thing. And, and again, I would just come back to the word discipline. It's how, how disciplined Frank is, how sort of respectful he is and, and, and how uh, capable he is with the gun. Yeah. And you can tra- contrast that with these guys that are uh, clearly quite undisciplined and not nearly as capable and, and, and don't have the same level of respect for the firearms. Yeah. 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 And it definitely feels like it's, it's a, uh, it's an actual pointedness to, you know, there's there's, there's, sure. there's a reason why we've 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 recorded it in that way, and Frank being being that Western kind of style, you know, hero mm. that doesn't want to use guns, use and uh, wants to use his his power of speech and stuff, which he does later in this in the episode as well. He does indeed. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also as well, there's there's this um, just kids and guns reference in that scene oh, as well. That line, yes, yes. Um... Yeah, and I love I love Frank's reaction to when uh, McLaren actually says that, and I guess it and I guess it's someone in McLaren's position who's seen it all too many times before, and has just sort of normalised it in a way that that clearly Frank hasn't in the way that he responds to that line. Yeah, that's a that's a, a great moment too. It is, yeah, yeah. It's it's as to tell it. It's a telling line, isn't it? And I think they they hold on that on that scene particularly well for you know to to really push push that home. Um. Yeah, so we've. I'm just gonna have a quick look here. So we have uh, we have talked about the the fact of Baldwin when Baldwin goes to um, talks about the two uh, reasons why the the guns that uh, why he thinks that the the kid had been shot in the head um, by himself, and then obviously Frank questions that. And I, I do like that that line actually because I like I like the way that Frank's saying, "Look, I'm not saying you're wrong," because that's <laughs> something that I, I, I don't think you'd ever hear. In another TV show, I don't think I've ever heard someone say, you know, you, you know, you the way you're doing it is wrong, but I'm not saying yeah. you are actually wrong. I'm just saying you, you haven't followed procedure, which is an interesting thing in itself. Yeah, again, he's quite measured and respectful, even even when disagreeing on on uh, such an important point of procedure. Yeah, where this is something that when we get to the point where Frank is asking, you know, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, I'm going to go out there. And if you say no, I understand. I'm just going to turn in my credentials and go on for the good of it. You know, there's a build-up of what's been happening in 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 the end of season two, the five months that we've had between that and the innocence. What happens in the innocence, and the fact that he's feeling like he needs to get back out there and to start doing things. Gable House has actually reached out to Frank to to do this, and obviously he's being kept away from it. Um. What do you think to Frank's state of mind in the way that he comes out of season two coming into this episode? Because there is this eagerness for him to get back out there and just to do the good work. There's no real kind of aspect of millennium in this one. It's kind of just a standalone episode. But there is this feeling that Frank just wants to get back out and do do his job, really, isn't there? 
There is, there is, and 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 of course the the, the two parter that precedes this has has dealt in in part and uh, with some of that fallout and some of the therapy that he's been through and and so on. That there is a a hint at the end of that that previous two parter that um, that he's going to go after the the group, and you do wonder if that's there in the background and if, in his motive to wanting to be. Um, uh, to, to want to be there at the, at the FBI and, and, and have um, have the opportunity to do so, but um, I, I, I do like that that it's McLaren um, that says you know the fact that this is sending him back out to you know, this is essentially him going home to, to where to where he used to live and where, where all the, those events of the end of season two played out um, that um, that he's not keen for him to go for those reasons and. And I'm glad that that's touched upon because it's not touched upon elsewhere in the episode. And that, and that almost seems a little odd that there's not, you know, some exchange between Frank and Giebelhaus at some stage that, that, that acknowledges, you know, what, what's happened. But, um, uh, so I like that it's, that it's, uh, called out through McLaren in this way and that, that idea that McLaren's looking out for Frank. But, um, yeah, there's clearly a determination from Frank to, well, to, I think still to want to do good work and feel he can he can contribute, but you do wonder if there's there's some other um, motive that he's got churning away in the back of his mind as well. The next scene as well, which is, which goes to attest to what um, Emma Hollis is like as, as well as as a character, is that I, I talked again last couple of episodes about the relentlessness in which Emma will go and pursue something. Now, in the last couple of episodes, that's been very much a case of you know, actually in some ways helping Frank by pulling him out of the, the mire that he was in. He was just like, go home, not interested. You know, I've given up the ghost in some ways. But yes. uh, Emma pulls him out of that because of her, how relentless she is, you know, especially when she goes to that house and the burnt mm-hmm. and goes to the hospital, the ICU in the previous two episodes. Um, and in this one, she's, again, it, it balances out from, you know, thematically from her character that, in the previous episodes, she would have just come and knocked on the door, but she does actually say here, you know, it's like, I went round the block four or five times yes. before thinking about it. Um, yeah. And then we get the, the scene where it's actually from the cre- the credits as well, which is obviously where they've taken the, the credit scene from. But, um, you know, uh, and, but there's also a little, a little line with Jordan as well, which I, which I quite like about, you know, what does it tell you about answering the door and find out who's there and yes. some of the apologies and stuff like that. And the fact that Frank says, no, you know, she's not coming with me kind of thing. Um, which is which is interesting in itself. I know that obviously she hadn't convinced him at that point, but it is a, a nice little nice little um, scene that. I love that scene. It's one of my favourite scenes of the whole episode, actually, for the the whole interplay between the three of them. So you've got Frank there being protective of Jordan, sending her upstairs when the conversation takes yeah. a particular turn. He doesn't want her to hear the, the sort of worst parts of it. And then, yeah, that's, I mean, it's it's very subtle, but it's the almost a notion of, um, yeah, no, I'm not going away with this woman, you know, with Jordan having lost her mother. And I don't know, that you yeah. just get a sense of, I got oh, that. this is some new lady that's turned up in our lives, you know. Um, so th- that whole scene, I think, is very well played out. And, and even, you know, just three episodes in, the interplay between um, between Frank and Emma, which is um, so well done here as well. I think I, I think I called out in the primer that, that um, Emma Hollis 
Atlas was my I called her out as my favourite character yeah, sort of apart from did, Frank yeah. Black and um, and I think it's for so how they've really hit the ground running in terms of the chemistry between the two of them but, the, but that particular type of chemistry that they have and for how well scenes such as this these quiet scenes um, um, play out and, and, and even so earlier in the episode where they're, where, um, they're questioning Baldwin and you just get these looks between Emma and Frank and so on I think all of that stuff is um, Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's so well done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was something I was going to bring up, actually, because there is a few, few in this episode where there's just a look that, that Clear Scott gives and Senrix and it's like, and Baldwin's in the vicinity as well. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I quite like that. Um, especially given the, the scene where Baldwin at the end of exegesis is like really smug. The fact that, that Frank's actually in the interview room with, uh, with the woman and doing the confession and she's been left, left alone because basically Frank's protecting her at that point. But the way that Baldwin's quite smug towards it. And I think that's why. Some of the dynamic works this early on with the three of them, because it's quite it's a dichotomy of the of the of the characters. Um, but I did pick up, as you say, I did pick up that that Jordan, you know, because even in the last episode we had uh, the the plate settings, the extra plate settings and things, and and the fact that Jordan's asking, "Are you going to go with this this woman?" It, it did feel like you know, and it, and it's done in a way that you know it's it's not done from a you know, we want to raise, raise sexual tension between these two people. It's, mm. it's done through the fact of Jordan's lost somebody and is this person replacing them, as you say? It's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's very subtle, but it's it's definitely there and it's uh, and yeah. I think all, all, all the better for how subtly it's done. Both at the beginning and the end of the episode as well, there's um, this the, there's the mention of this book, the, the books um, within this scene as well, that, um, you know, they're talking about the days of numbered history coming backwards to count uh, as we count forward to a new dark age. What did you make to, to put in this in? Because this is kind of kind of a quite a millennium thing to do to have these kind of scripture and this, this these elements to it. But the Book of Hours is is it's it's very straightforward in what it's saying about you know the fact that we could be hitting a new dark age. What did you think to having these monologues and using this book within the Skylark um, situation with um, you know the warnings and stuff? I do, I do love the the monologues, the the Carter uh, monologues and soliloquies. So I, I love how that sort of bookends the um, the episode, and I do like that this is thrown in for something that is quite millenniumistic. Um, I, I refrain, and, and, I refrain from saying oh, that before I said it, but I was like, I'll let you go. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Yeah. Um, but but I think it also it fits well um, with the the whole Y two K element. So you know, literally entering a dark age so if if all our technology were to fail today you can see given how how much data is is uh how much of all the data that sums up who we are and, and the age that we're living through is held digitally yeah it would lead to a dark age so i think i think it's very effective um to um to talk about the dark ages and then introduce a text like that in the context of this episode mm, yeah yeah absolutely um right, so, th- so the, the next scene is where we've got Hollis, Frank, and they're interviewing Kathy, the ex-girlfriend. And uh, 
the one thing that I keep um, keep referring back to this is when Gable House pulls the can thing and she, she jumps. <laughs> yes. Uh, and yes. For a number of different a... reasons, I think that's effective. I think it's effective because Kathy's been in a position where she's obviously scared and, you know, any loud noise is going to affect her. It's also quite, it's a jump scare because, you know, it's a very loud can. Hmm. <laughs> um, but it's also quite intelling with Gable House as well. So I think it, it works on multiple levels, really. It does, yeah. It sort of conveys a little bit sort of PTSD or, or, or whatever that um, that she's that Kathy's suffering from. But but yeah, it's a it's one of those little sly Gable House comedic moments that, that we love. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just for prosperity, I'm going to mention this, and this is nothing to do with Millennium. It's got nothing to do with anything. But um, I, I went I went into my car two days ago on on the Friday. We had a, our hottest day of the year so far. And um, what I didn't realise is that I'd left a can of IPA in the um, in the car, and <laughs> I went in. I opened the car door at eight o'clock in the morning, and I was like, "All oh, this sticky stuff, like literally all over the car." I've got leather seats in my my box oh, last week, and I was yeah. like, "What on earth has happened here?" Thinking the other half's done something or whatever, and then I saw the can, and the can was like obliterated. So it's obviously oh, no. pressurising, just blew yeah. up. And yeah. it just went everywhere, and I was just like, uh, when when I saw this, when I saw this um, scene, I just imagined just how much of a noise and how much of an explosion that can would have made in the car. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you went driving at sixty miles an hour. When it, oh, happened. it would have been a nightmare because there's literally there'll be drink there now forever and a day, and I'll be still mm. cleaning it in two years' time. But it was quite scary. Oh, no. But yeah, that's just for prosperity. So when I listen, listen back to, the, to these recordings in twenty years' time, I'll remember that. Um, all right. Okay. So, so the, 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 okay. So what do you think to the, the situation with Brant, um, Carmody and, and the dad, obviously, you know, we, I mentioned about him portraying, um, about Robert Wise and Payne pusher and stuff like that previously, but, um, as the characters, the fact that, you know, Frank gets his vision and he sees that he does feel that, that he did kill those kids because of basically because of what, um, He's what he's been told and that he believes that, you know, he's been murdered. He didn't kill himself. Um, what do you, do you make to that one, that family unit and, and this kind of the do all anything to protect yourself kind of thing that the dad is portraying here, but also the, um, the kind of the, the, the pure like existential crisis that, that Brent had to go through to actually get to that point, that breaking point where, you know, he, he thinks all is lost. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty bleak. The more you think about it, the the bleaker it is. But um, yeah, that 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 idea of the yeah, how hopeless you must feel the 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 the, the future is to have uh, to have done what he done, and but then how uh, that's Brant. But but in terms of uh, Chris, the the father, Robert Weston's character, um, yeah, what sort of what sort of a person could to do that to um to protect their own self-interest i guess it, it just shows how far he's prepared to go and how unhinged he is with the, the beliefs that he has that um yeah even at the cost of of one of his children supposedly in his own uh crazed um um imaginings that, that that's going to somehow protect the rest of his family that it's yeah it's pretty unhinged and pretty bleak when yeah. you think about it someone's prepared to go to those lengths but even like sort of when they go to that fire back to that fire range which I mentioned before that mm. he says it, I've taken care of it. it's all being done it, 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 yeah. it's almost like he's you know there's, 
that that just a part of him just isn't willing to, to accept it. It's all it's all on the end of end of the world kind of aspect. Yes. He's just not he's not emotionally attached at all. And it's it's really interesting that that that, that is. And I, I like the interplay as well with that because if you if you convert that to what um Carlton is doing and Carlton's dad towards the end, you know, and how the two the, the two different parents have reacted and the fact that, you know, that he the Carlton's dad's obviously got more uh, has has more of a connection with his son than than he does, so it's an interesting concept there as well. And I like the the fact that they've they've got that balance within that within that community. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and and of course, there's the fact that there's there's uh, Frank there to uh, well, yeah. to reason with him and have him see uh, um, have him see uh, have him see reason before he does something really stupid. Yeah, because yeah. I always think that at that point, the two the two scenes towards that that end of that scene is when. Carlton stands in the way. Now, you know, if if it had been the fact that it would have been Robert Wiseman's character, then you know, it would it have would, yeah. it, would it have turned out differently because he's standing in the way, and you actually feel, in some ways, you feel a bit scared because, like, what will these people do to go to the lens? Will he actually kill his son here? So it actually builds a bit of like um, tension. It does, yeah, very effectively, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I do have to mention. I, I half mentioned it before, but I have to mention the line that Gieberhaus says to uh, what, what's the what's Robert Weissen's dad call? It's, could you say it was Carl? Uh, Chris. Chris, Chris Comedy. Yeah. Um, so we said, well, that's interesting because I, I love this because this this feels like Gieberhaus has learned so much in the you know the two prevailing years that we've not seen him really for for a while. I know we saw him in Doomsday Defense, didn't we? I don't think. Yes. Did we see him anything else after that? Um, I don't think so. I don't think we did. Did we? Um, so the fact that he's like, he's, he's, he's learned from Doomsday Defense, because I know there's a bit of like interplay with that, but the fact that he's saying the coroner's pathologist, um, the coroner's pathologist said that your son had still had toothpaste in his mouth, brushing his teeth, and that uh, he found him dead in his jammies, which always like throws me off when he said it, <laughs> uh, which is, but it's like, it's, it's great. It's, it's a Giba House thing to do. It's totally in character. And I like it. Yeah, um, yeah. and, and I do like the fact that, you know, there's, there's real willing for Gieberhaus there. He's like, you know, he's he's wanting to get to the bottom of it. He absolutely believes that that he didn't commit suicide, that yes. it is the dad's fault. Um, and then you've got the, you know, Carmody saying, and that's what you're basing this on. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. need a lawyer, aren't you, kind of thing. Which, yeah, it, it's a line you can just imagine that happening. But I do I do love the fact that, you know, you've got Gieberhaus actually conveying that he is an intelligent police detective he is he knows what he's doing he's just got a unique style about him yes and you often don't see enough of that do you from no. from Giebel House, as you say so yeah it's nice to see him doing some actual detecting yeah 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 <laughs> what did, the only thing like okay this this is it's a bit of a criticism for me and i still have a little bit of struggle with this and i hope you can help me with this right mm-hmm. so when hollis is going through the printer and we see skylark and skylark is threatening to kill um this, well, well, what we see as an email threatening to kill him, and that that was the basis of, you know, what um, Baldwin does. What did he make to that that whole that, that whole scene and, and the story behind it? What do you read from that? Because I'm not convinced I quite understand it. I think I know what, it, what where it's, where it went and what it was trying to portray, but I'm not sure it's clear enough on screen. But what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so it. <laughs> It does, I guess it, it gives you some tension as to mm, quite who's done what. It's not necessarily a real tension. I, I guess it at least gives, um, 
uh, gives Carlton the um, the drive to then act as he does and and turn up at the uh, hotel and threaten Frank and Emma in the way he does, which then propels us on through the episode. I guess that's the purpose it 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 casts in the story. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, it, it's not like it, it really effectively um, sets up some tension as to exactly what had happened. I think we sort of figured out what's really going on by this point, haven't we? It's fairly yeah. clear. Yeah, it just feels a bit like convol. It doesn't feel. I, I never can can quite get to grips with what they're trying to get. I, I, I think it's almost like you know, our Baldwin's got this piece of information which Hollis was trying to hide. But right. yeah, it, it doesn't, I don't quite know what the, I, I know from a narrative point of view, what they're trying to do. They're trying to take yeah. the onus off, um, you know, off Chris, but then <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, it, it just feels a bit, I don't know. It doesn't feel quite right to me how, the, how it was all set up. I know what you mean. It doesn't fit quite right. I guess it's another instance of of perhaps a Baldwin getting perhaps slightly the wrong end of the stick. It's like he's trying to he's trying to get one up on uh, yeah. on his fellow investigators. Uh, that seems to be his motive half the time, rather than actually <laughs> yeah. trying to solve the crime in question. Yeah. yeah, and then obviously we get Frank. You know, asks about which is which. I love. You know, it's typical nineties speak saying, "Can you get the internet service provider to find out who Skylark is? Do it quickly. Do it quietly." <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> um, his life is going to be in danger again. I think you're you're right by the it's the necessity to build some tension when there is doesn't really feel like there's anything there. And that'll be a criticism yeah. I have of this episode. This is probably the main one. I'm kind of like not quite sure I'm with, on board here. Um, you know, so so I think that there's a bit there's a bit of an issue there. Um, yeah. So they're doing the background check and. What I find really interesting here is the is just the lengths that the the group are going to, the amount of stuff that they're getting to, the things on there, which is like gas generators, solar paneling, barbed wire, non-perishable food, and this goes on. Um, you know, which is what the, what um what this what Frank says. They've got M sixteen assault rifles. They've got um, you know, and it's in when it, when it's when they start talking about the weapons, it feels very much like. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean to to allude to the X Files on this because it, I'm not, but it's just the the feel where I died, where they've got, they're hiding the weapons. Yes, it's kind yes. of like you, um, you know, your you Waco and kind of aspect of that. You know, it's almost like the the expecting a siege. It does, it does evoke a little bit of that, and and just the whole, I guess, the whole prepper mindset, which is, I guess, it's something we have here, but not in quite the same way as uh, you had or have in um, in the United States. So, um, again, I think it, it it fits, whether it quite goes with the the character of the sort of people you would imagine running an IT company. I, I don't know, but um, um, I get, it feels like something that uh, it fits the world of Millennium that, the, that these people uh, preparing in this way for what they see as the oncoming end of the world feels um, I won't say Millennium is sticking up, but again, it, it just feels like it fits with the themes of the series very well. It, it does. Yeah. I actually like it. I think it's interesting that, you know, they've They've done the let's go out, let's go in a high place uh, in a mountain at a hotel. This will be our our you know um, Noah's Ark kind of thing. This will be our, our ark to save save humanity. You've got the um, you know the fact that we can change the future in the innocence and exegesis in the last two episodes with uh, you know by the remote viewers that that um, that goes into it. Um, and then you've got these people here who are kind of hoarding and you know knowing that. The world is going to irrevocably change into in two thousand with the the change of the uh, of the computers and everything going down. 
that they're getting everything together and they they think that they know that this dark age is coming and they're ready to protect it and to uh, defend it in the way that they're doing and i think it's 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 an interesting play on on stuff that we've seen before yeah it is and and it is and as crazy as it seems and as crazy as it is, it's, um, you know, there are people who think and behave this way. Yeah. It's, um, as far out as it may seem to, to you or I, it's, yeah. <laughs> there are people that do actually think and, and, um, and behave in exactly this way. Yeah. I mean, you could talk, I could totally see the, this group of people being, uh, a group of people that would meet in the walking dead, <laughs> for example, and yes. find their backstory. <laughs> but, uh, that's another story. Um, yeah. So. With Frank, get, when um, when Carlton comes out, when Skylark, as as, he, as he's called, comes to the door, we get the knock and we get the um, you know the ad break as such, and you know he's saying go back, get back up, get go inside, kind of thing. Um, and there's the, there's the nice little couple of stages off with Hollis and, and Frank there as well, isn't there? There's like little little touches where he's like don't kind of thing. And- yes, yes, absolutely, yeah, the the. the- yeah, they're into place so good yeah. you know, at this early stage. Yeah. yeah, and what I actually do like is the the breakdown because you know you'd th- expect in the most TV shows that you'd get some sort of like either talk down in in a some way or they would figure a way of actually getting round him and and taking the gun away from him. But I yes. like the fact he just breaks down. I, I think that's a, that's really really good character arc for for Carlton. Really, it is for Carlton, and 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 again, just showing. The, the sort of empathy that um that Frank has in terms of how how skillfully um he and quickly he, he manages to talk him down as well. Um yes. So yeah, for, both for Carlton's arc and also this sort of assured version of Frank that you said is quite a, a season one Frank that we get. Yeah. yeah. And and um and we get that, don't we, in the in the final scenes when we do end up at the field where, you know, the the they're disabling the um, the cars because they don't have the firepower. At the end of the day, they don't. And then we get to the point where he does have to talk to Gary and talk Gary down, um, saying, you know, this is not a war and there's no enemies here. Put the gun down um, and show your son. And and that is very, very kind of season one, uh, season one, Frank, and something that we've not necessarily seen too much of in, in season two, but not this style of, of Frank either, not this style of show anyway. So it's something that I quite, I actually quite liked uh, on this. And I quite like the direction on it as well, because Thomas J. Wright is obviously a, is a seasoned pro at this point for the mm-hmm. show. And, and I think he, uh, he directs this, this episode quite well, to be honest. Yes, absolutely. He's, yeah, Mr. Millennium, as they call him. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Millennium. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And apart from that, really, unless there's anything that I've missed, I know I've kind of loosely gone over the, the, the end scene, but it's, it's fairly self-explanatory with the, you know, final third act kind of thing. You know, it's very set piece. It's ready to, ready to roll out. And, you know, there's a couple of gunshots here and there. And obviously Frank doing what he needs to do. And then we get the, the voiceover at the end. And obviously the scene I mentioned before about the, the guns being fired and Frank not doing that. I know there's uh, there's scenes where he takes out the um, you know the, the duffel bag and he's got the FBI badge in there, which I thought was nice. Mm-hmm. It looked it looked like an old. It definitely didn't look like a modern Scully badge. It definitely <laughs> right. looked like ex FBI. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. know how the FBI works. I don't know if that means that because you're an FBI agent in the you know maybe the sixties or the seventies that you just keep the same badge potentially that, yeah i don't know either no but yeah it does seem to be of a particular vintage doesn't it, it? Does, yeah. it does seem to be a vintage. <laughs> uh, and obviously I, I think as well some of the interplay that thomas wright does there with, with, by really concentrating on the gun again because of the type of episode it is and what frank actually does 
you know the the difference the dichotomy between the fact that he has a gun but he never actually takes it out of the bag really and as you say the the difference between the uh, the IT guys who are willing to do that and Frank who's like sort of more disciplined in that in that way I think it really works but um but yeah that brings the episode to to an end so do you have anything else you wanted to bring up with uh, regards to the episode yeah, I mean, it is just uh, just in terms of the ending again, just how um, yeah, the 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 what you can achieve through skill and experience as opposed to to brute force and 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 uh, relying on uh, such violence. I think I think it's a it's a powerful um, um, message, and I think it's very well told. And, and I think this is a great uh, great script and a great episode. And I, I do like so I do like the uh, as I said the quotes that bookend this. And I think so I talked about discipline a bit, but and that comes up again in the um, in, in that final quote that Frank has, where he talks about you know the radical few who obey no disciplines, unencumbered by conscience, and prepare ruthlessly pursuing their own preservation. That's a perfect way of summing up how. Um, uh, our Chris Carmody and, and the folks there have um, uh, have have behaved, and I think I mean you could say that there's a little heavy-handed with a little crowd at the end, but I, but I love it. Um, and he says, you know, if they survive, uh, the rest of us perish. Um, none will weep for the civilized; the principled us, uh, except God itself, himself. And I, I I think that's a it's a great final um, line, um, and uh, leaves you with something to think about. And and I think um, the, the episode as a whole, as I say, we only get a few. Um, installments written by uh, Chris Carter in the season. This is the first one, and it does. I, I, I know he talked again around the time before the season came out how he had lots of ideas and things he wanted to insert, and and he'd had long conversations with Lance before the season, and then it, it doesn't then feel as though he's he is particularly involved, and I, and I guess that's purely the the schedule of uh, as you mentioned running the X-Files out of um, Los Angeles at the same time so perhaps he had all good intentions of being more involved in the season but but um, and, and perhaps he was to, to more than an extent that we realise behind the scenes but um, um, I think it's this episode and the other episodes that he that he writes with Frank Spotnitz are um, uh, are worth spending time with and, um, and looking at in great detail for, for being his uh, his final sort of statements on the series as he as he uh, returns to it this year mm. yeah it'd be interesting if we if if we could like be the fly on the wall at, at the times when this was being aired and stuff like some of the character themes some of the arc on that i mean not necessarily the the grander like evil themes yes we've got things like seven and one and whatever when we come to them but um it just like the there is this does seem at this in these two these three episodes there is some interconnectivity between what Chris Carter's written here with Frank Spotnitz and the previous two episodes, it does feel to me like there is something. Uh, it's just how far does that go? And it'd be interesting to just have that in the back of my mind as I go through this season, because the majority of the season I think I'm going to be on anyway, as as always. Um, but, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see just in, with that in the back of my mind, whether or not there does seem to be some interplay or some like character beats that maybe that Chris Carter was involved in. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, it's worth reflecting on. Um, as you say, I, I, I think there's something that does fit thematically from this episode, as we talk, you t- mentioned about sort of parent, uh, father and, and son, and sort of the parent-child dynamic that comes through in in, um, in this. And just the whole idea of us being shepherds for future generations and the choices that we make, I do think this fits very well thematically into the into the broader season as well. But yeah, in terms of those character beats, worth worth reflecting back on those as you go through as well. Absolutely. 
Right, okay, so we'll call that a, a day for the episode as a whole. We do need to go into the mailbag. There's one on Twitter, and Russ Hugo, as I said, has mentioned one. I don't like, copy and paste and see how many num- how many um, words there is, but we'll try and get through <laughs> some of it, Russ. Um, so I think I'll go to the Twitter one first. So just before we do that, let's, uh, let's have, have a look into the mailbag. Okay, so yeah, so Oscar Groucho says, early, early prescient, Chris Carter's chamber piece rather than orchestra. The angst of youth and the talons of despair combine, combining to provide a sombre hymn to the ethos of millennium. Underrated in a show that's still recalibrating from the change in format. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned about the, the feel of, there's, there's elements of the X-Files theme, uh, feel to this. Uh, I'm not one that would act explicitly go out and um, say it's a bad thing. I think this episode actually works quite well because of it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Hollis and, and Frank character is interesting in that way because it's a mentor, not a sexual attention thing. And I know that Chip Johansson, Johansson has said that they didn't want to go down that way. But yet, like season one with the serial killer of the week, like what we'd say is unfairly said, Yes, it has some basis, but it, I think it's unfair on it. Um, I think that this has the same for um, season three, that it's X-Files light as such. Well, not X-Files season six light, but um, but a millennium version of X-Files. And I think there's, uh, for me personally, I think, yes, there's touchstones for it, but I don't think it's, it's bad because of it. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. And, and I think, uh, I, I know what you're saying about the X-Files influence, but I also think you can't underestimate the influence of Millennium on the X-Files as well. Yeah, well There's yeah. very much a sort of cross-pollination between the uh, between the two, but as you say, not a, not a bad thing. And I think um, so the whole serial killer of the week uh, comment that, that gets thrown in season one, I think really when you look, you look at season one, a lot of it's just about human tragedy and the way that this episode is also centred around yeah. human tragedy. And I think that, um, that comes through and, and perhaps is, is something of a thematic link as well. Yeah, and you, you could, I could see this episode being in season one. Definitely, it's definitely, it definitely has that more than like seasons. The the, the first two episodes is a, a amalgamation of pretty much everything, and it has to do that. It has to draw the lines between season one and season two, and and uh, we discussed that in the last couple of weeks. But this one does feel like it's you know it it's as as it's, as um, Oscar Groucho says there. You know it's. Um, Still recalibrating a little bit, but I do think it's uh, it's it's good for it. Right, let's talk on Facebook. Russ Hugo. Okay, I'm going to give this a go. I might I might end up saying four words and saying, "Oh, it's cut." Uh, but, um, okay, so he says before I started this comment, I did didn't think I had much to say about this episode, but the more I thought about it, the more I found to be bothered or bored by it. From season two onwards, the writer seems to be less um, accurate with the location names in the. Uh, Pacific Northwest of the US. I have to work out what PNW meant there. Uh, Russ, come on, give us a favour. We're, we're English. <laughs> um, it Redland is clearly intended to be Redmond, the home of Microsoft. I mean, come logic. Did the legal landscape change after season one or did standards of practices win the battle in season two? Okay, that's fine. Uh, there are some really brave and interesting ideas here, but the follow-through is too tame and muddled. This could have worked well in season one or season two. It filmed with the edge that in Arcadia Ego had or amped up the mysticism in, of Amanesis. I could understand that the flat direction and production, if they were motivated by the seriousness of the topic of school shootings, but it feels like 
No one making this episode cared about the script and who could blame them. In the code open, there seems there are many ideas presented that go nowhere. These are references, maybe unintentional, to indigenous colonization and apocalypse. The high school mascots being the warriors, commonly as indigenous peoples as uh, commonly had indigenous peoples as their mascots. My local school, high school, growing up had the same. Then, of course, there are color-based references: red land and red, white, blue fight nationalism. Uh, we have a creepy proto incel character. That's an interesting comment. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, that is somewhat redeemed question mark question mark by the script corporate involvement in in involvement in school funding and class divide as well as school shooting in the end the script boils down to a bland stew about survivalist technocrats and the y2k right i'll leave it there just for now and we'll talk about what do you think to that comment about the proto incel character then so yeah, there is a point in the episode where where you could say that that's that's a sort of misdirection that we're given, and perhaps it's playing with that that stereotype. But um, um, because it's not, you know, he's not the one who's ultimately responsible. Yes, he has some perhaps some slightly uh, inappropriate behaviour in terms of the, uh, the the gift, the unwanted gift of the the book and the, and, and so on. But yeah, I see. I I don't um, I don't necessarily have a problem with it as it's shown in here because ultimately that's a character that is redeemed and um and actually well he stands up to his own father in a way that that uh, helps to uh, resolve the episode so um i mean i i, I didn't see it as insert until i literally just read that there i didn't i didn't think of it in that way i did think that he's a character that is going through a lot of change he's, he's an adolescent child mm. who's you know, dealing with these these feelings that he might have for that for that particular cheerleader in mind that he he needs he needs an outlet and that's that's his outlet to kind of yes. pass on the stuff that he knows and you know he's been given so much information about what would be the end of the world how does mm-hmm. someone react to that yes so, yes I, I, yeah I, yeah go on I I, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily yeah use the term incel I, th- I think uh, I think it's perhaps pushing it a little far but I but I get that reading of it yeah certainly. yeah it's an interesting reading definitely I, I didn't I didn't think about that until as I say I've just read it there so he continues on to say the idea of children being unable to cope with apocalyptic anxiety is interesting um, and could have been the focus e.g. amnesis but instead after everything, the episode doesn't go anywhere or do anything of substance with any of the more challenging ideas. It's a mess of a surf. It's mess of surface symbolism that uses shock to make the viewer do all the work. Unfortunately, the script, direction, and acting make it very hard for the viewer to, to to want to do any of the work. There is some really rough acting in this episode. It's possibly Wright's weakest work on Millennium, and I wonder how much uh, of this is to do with the production issues of early season three or the script. The opening and closing monologues are succinct, uh, are a succinct summary of the episodes and some of season three. Uh, sorry, I'll, re- re- I'll reread that. The opening, of the, clo- the opening and closing monologues are a succinct summary of the episode's muddiness and structural problems, and he's referring to season three there. The first monologue is almost camp on how the nose is untethered from reality it is. The second is just a ball of confusion and pedantic nonsense. And I think he, re- he then quotes the actual stuff. Uh, basically, everyone will know about the c- catastrophe, but not believe or do anything. And the only people who believe and do something will be selfish. These people will then be destroyers of everyone else. Why not simply address the issue of hoarding and violence? Instead, it's everyone who believes there is an issue and works to solve it before it's too late, e.g. climate change, which is an issue in the 1990s as well. Um, 
it, that's the problem. The quote seems very much pointed towards the the Millennium Group and its current status, and so the quote really only serves to hammer home the in-universe mythology change while making a very weak statement on survivalists in an episode where the main issues should be school shootings and child psychology. The episode is not a complete disaster, but it's a disappointing, muddled mess it's hard to take seriously, considering the topics that it's trying to address. It's fairly tragic, as so much more could have been done with the premise. And at least we get to see Giba House again. <laughs> and, that, and, and that's where he ends. So thanks, Russ. Uh, as always, it's it's always nice to um, to have have people's opinions on it. And I, and I think he's 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 got a few few um, comments there, like I'd say for the incel, which I would I, I think I'd welcome. Some of the Americanism stuff, I'm not I'm not too au fait with, so I don't think I, I'm in the right position to comment on them to be honest but. yeah it's interesting i mean i i disagree with most of that but but i obviously i respect the the opinion and the response the you know clearly a, a genuine and uh and, and thoughtful response to the episode but yeah. um um yeah, I'd, I I don't have a lot of those same problems with it. I, I, there are quite a lot of threads to this, and okay, yes, could you focus more on the child psychology angle and so on? Yes, but but I think that's perhaps. I, I mean, I do think there's a coherent I, idea or coherent ideas behind this, and and that the um, the uh, the quotes that we have that bookend the episode, I think are, I think are quite poetic, and I think they're um, they're quite effective uh, too. But that's yeah, that's entirely fair response. Incidentally, so there's another reference of Giebelhaus there, and I was just checking in the background i think we, we're underserving giebel house oh, for right. other episodes that he showed up in in season two yeah so he um he showed up in siren um and a couple of others as well so he did have a handful of appearances through season two that we're, uh, well, si- we're perhaps overlooking towards, to be fair siren is an episode i keep forgetting <laughs> so, <laughs> so if, and again it is awful that i'm having to rely on imdb i should know better than this and i <laughs> apologize to stephen j lang and to giebel house but uh goodbye charlie roosters room in no view oh well. yeah i do remember him in goodbye charlie actually and room mm. in no view yeah yeah, uh, so I did. I'll use the excuse that I didn't cover a room with no, no view. Oh, that's what I'm going to say. Yeah, there, oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> anyway, sorry, but that's that's to pick up on one one uh, side note from Ross's uh, comments there. But Brilliant. yeah, no, I, uh, interesting. I I don't have n- nearly uh, as many of those problems. I, th- I think the idea of that we passed over that he mentioned about corporate invo- involvement in um, funding of the school is is an interesting point because yeah, that's right there yeah. front and center at the moment of the shooting, and and perhaps is a uh, quite pointed in terms of the the moment when the shooting uh, takes place. It's kind of a hint or a clue as to uh, to the um, the true motive, but yeah, um, um, yeah I mean, I, in terms of the um, sort of symbolism and the script direction and and, and even the direction, I, I didn't um, I didn't have problems yeah. with those things, but but no respect Ross's uh, response to it. Yeah, I, I think with you saying about the the actual scene, I mean, it's strangely enough, that's the scene where it, where where the um, the two million dollar sign gets um, thing is the the actual gift file that I decided on on using for the. Uh, for the question and um they touch upon it very very i mean we've talked about it but they touch upon it a little bit with um mclaren and frank and them talking about the uh actually within the scene but i i, I get his point that it's not it's not like as overt as it could be maybe maybe edited out it may be not not just not done or it might not be drafted through but it's it does seem to be something that they've abstractly touched upon very very slightly but maybe not gone to as much depth as it could have. And I, and I, I do appreciate the line where he's saying about why do we not simply address the hoarding and violence? And like you say, the some of the stuff that you might have got in things like the well-worn lock, for example, you might have got more of that. 
but it's, it would be a slightly different episode at that point. So. Yeah, I mean, I've, to me, I think there were just there's a lot of ideas that have that have gone into this episode, and, and yeah. yes, you could have chosen to explore some of them um, in, in more detail, but that um, between them, Frank and uh, and Chris obviously made made different creative choices. But um, yeah, you could equally have gone another way. I think, but that that speaks to the uh, um, the uh, sheer range of ideas that have gone into the episode. Absolutely. Well, that calls the the episode to a close. So. Um, you will be back with us later on in the season. You're coming back for Through a Glass Darkly. So that'll be three or four weeks away. Um, we've got a very interesting episode for you next week where we're going to have a solo host. There's not going to be a guest. So I'm going to leave that dangling and uh, hopefully you'll come back and have a listen to it. It's a very interesting special edition of uh, The Time Is Now and we're going to be covering closure as normal. But uh, but we're doing it in a unique style. So this is our... This is our kind of like Jose Chung's Doomsday Defense version of uh, the time is now. Uh, we're, go- we're going, we're going off kilter. We're not going to the usual standard of hosting guests. We're going to something different. But uh, until then, where can people find you online, Adam? And uh, as I say, we'll see you in a few weeks. But uh, where can people find you online? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm on Twitter, uh, Adam underscore Chamberlain, spelled B-R-L-N at the end, um, and uh, and also at fourthhorsemanpress.com. Excellent stuff. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at um, R Muldrake. That's R-M-U-L-D-R-A-K-E. You find out what I'm doing. I've got plenty of things on the go at the moment. Obviously, the time is now is back. It's always a great thing. Uh, you know, we are three episodes in to the, to the season. Um, I, I, once I get halfway through, I think I'll be start feeling a bit melancholy, as I know it'll be coming to an end soon, uh, which has been which will be a bit a sad time. But um, but still a lot to do before we get there. Um, you can also find me on the Red Dwarf podcast that I'm now doing, which is at Red Dwarf Pod, and um, that will be a podcast on Red Dwarf on all the, the specials that have been out through the summer, and we will be on seasons two to four, somewhere around season two to season four, somewhere around there at the time this airs. So I think it'll be season two that will be on. Uh, yes, it will be season two. So we'll be, we'll be on at season two um, when this airs. Uh, so look forward to seeing that. Uh, obviously, you'll find me on the X-Cast. We've just completed the Fight the Future Minute, which was us going through the Fight the Future film uh, minute by minute. So we've had a, host, a whole round of hosts and guests on that, of which I was uh, included on there. I guested and hosted on that show. Uh, you'll hear likes of Darren Mooney on there, people you've heard on on this podcast as well. Um, yeah, so plenty for you to get your teeth into and uh, no doubt you'll find me next year talking about um, season two of Picard as well. But uh, until next time, thank you everyone for coming. Thank you, Adam, for, for being a guest on the show again. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me again. Thank um, you. But until next time, remember, this is who we are. Elsewhere on We Made This. We are Starfleet. Honestly, it felt so great to see the Starship Discovery again. Yeah, out of the out of the frying pan and into the fire, right into the fire. Uh, so, in our previous episode, I had commented on how I felt like uh, all the dramatic tension that the writers built up with Burnham falling kind of felt like ah, all right, all right. But here, I felt the exact opposite. It just seemed like the right blend of tension and risk and what's at stake yeah you hit the nail on the head and i think there's a couple of reasons for this one i think the giddy carousel of pop so there's one particular thing where where i think sylvia just nails the manics absolutely nails them and nails them to this day
And she says, uh, the Manic's mission is a simple one. They want to make music exciting, glamorous and interesting again. Make people wake up out of the boredom and meaninglessness of 20th century life and jump up and down to some good old rock and roll music and think about things and have a laugh because at the end of the day, none of us will ever be happy. And I had to have everything about them immediately. The Movie Palace. Before we even think about the book, I suppose, were you coming to this as a Marilyn Monroe fan, uh, particularly? No, not at all. In fact, I'll admit, it's very awful, but I knew almost nothing about Marilyn Monroe. I I mean, I I knew of her. She's a cultural icon. I would say she's even gone beyond that now, and she's almost a symbol. So uh, I knew of her. I had seen a few movies that she'd been in. Although, to be honest, whenever I watched those movies, I wasn't really focusing on her because she was sort of in the background. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. The Time Is Now, a Millennium podcast, was created by Tony Black and is produced by Tony Black and Kurt North. We can be found on Twitter at The Time Is Now Pod or by searching Facebook for The Time Is Now. We are part of the We Made This Podcast Network, which can be found on Twitter at We Made This Pod or on the website WeMadeThisPod.com. For bonus material and exclusives, check out our sister show, The Xcast and X Files Podcast, where you can find our Patreon. This is who we are.